Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Easter Saturday, the 10th of April, 1982, and Greg McCarty is ready to say sayonara to Parramatta Jail. Since being transferred here almost a year ago, a move that thwarted his Long Bay jail escape scheme, he's been biding his time in Three Wing. Now Greg and a couple of other inmates have a plan. It's nowhere near as involved as the tunnel those jokers spent 10 months digging a few years back only to be busted just before breaking out. Greg's plan is more in tune with that guy who escaped Parramatta Jail in the back of a bread truck. He's employing the KISS principle keep it simple stupid simple and stinky and to tell the truth pretty dangerous get this wrong and greg's going to die in horrific fashion not shot but squashed that's because he and his mates plan to get out in a garbage truck all they have to do is not be seen by the screws when they scale a cyclone fence and then dash to the back of the vehicle and dive into the rubbish To avoid being crushed, they'll use wedges when a trustee prisoner, who's in on the plan, runs the compactor briefly so the guards think it's rubbish removal as usual. Then Greg and his fellow escapees will simply be taken out with the trash. At 7.30 this Easter morning, Parramatta prison officers muster their charges. All inmates are present and accounted for, including Greg McCarty, who's wearing a white singlet and green prison issue shorts. About three hours later, guards observe him near the visitor centre. And it's around this time, with the garbage truck due soon, that there's a kink in Greg's escape plan. According to Detective Sergeant John Anderson's later account in Australian Police magazine, some of the inmates are off playing a sporting match and most of the rest of the prisoners are cheering them on. What this has done is leave the yard nearly empty. 
which means the three would-be escapees disappearing now is going to be far more obvious. But Greg McHardy's come too far to turn back, so he goes for it, up and over the cyclone fence and into the garbage truck's compactor. Before his mates have a chance to join him, the screw overseeing the garbage truck's arrival and departure seems to sense that something's up. This warder walks around to the rear of the vehicle and starts poking the rubbish with a stick. Miraculously, Greg isn't discovered. Nor is he crushed when the trustee gives the compactor a run. Not long after these breathless moments, the garbage truck rumbles on out of Parramatta Jail. It heads east a couple of suburbs and then it's slowing and stopping. The truck's back end lifts up and everything starts sliding and slipping. Greg inside this slushy wave of kitchen scraps, meal hall slops, oozing cans, ciggy butts, busted thongs, mouldy rags and all the other crap generated by the hundreds of inmates and dozens of guards. Gravity having done its bit, Greg lays in this stinking mound on the stinking ground of Silverwater Tip. He's still and silent as the truck rumbles away. What's left are the cries of seagulls and the murmurs of nearby scavengers. Time to get a wriggle on. Greg McHardy gets up and gets out of the rubbish. He wipes himself off as best he can and hotfoots it towards Lidcombe. Greg knows his absence is going to be noticed at the midday muster, so he needs to get far away from here as fast as possible. At 10 to 12, just as prisoners are on their way to the muster inside Parramatta Jail's walls, Greg sees he's way out of Sydney, right in front of him in John Street, Lidcombe. A mustard-coloured 1977 Valiant with a woman at the wheel. Greg wrenches open the door. What are you doing, she yells. He says something like, you're caught, you're going with me, and grabs her by the hair. But the woman, she's not going anywhere without a fight, and they struggle. Greg throws open the passenger door and tosses her out. Then he puts pedal to the metal and roars off, with his victims screaming and running the opposite direction in his rearview mirror. In a minute or so, Greg's on Parramatta Road. Okay, which way to go? He knows it's not going to be long before the local cops are on the lookout for this car. If he's going to keep it, he's got to get the hell away from here. Get out of the state, and then get out of the country. I'm Michael Adams and this is part 8 of the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. Once the police and prison authorities finally got it through their heads that Greg McHardy had escaped, that he wasn't simply playing hide and seek inside Parramatta Jail, he was again all over the tabloids, radio bulletins and TV news. The front page of The Sun on the afternoon of Monday the 12th of April trumpeted, Woolly suspect, attack on woman in car, police claim after escape from jail. A national alert described Greg as extremely dangerous, and his old police photo, the one taken after he was captured off Taronga Park Wharf, was circulated everywhere. The picture showed him with long curly hair, big bushy beard, just as he'd been when he got out of Parramatta Jail. Thing was, all he had to do was cut his hair and have a shave, and he'd be unrecognisable. Bafflingly, at this point, police didn't bother finding another photo of Greg that might be more in line with how he'd look after a clean-up. Police and prison authorities, who were yet to figure out how Greg had got out, professed to be mystified by his escape. But they were going to get their man, and so they launched an all-out manhunt. But searches of Greg's known haunts were in vain. 
and the stolen car wasn't found. Detectives who'd worked the Woolworths case thought that Greg was probably already interstate with a new identity. Finding him looked like a long shot, especially if he was using his new name to get a legal passport. At 10am on Wednesday the 14th of April 1982, Judge Muir addressed the elephant in the room, or more accurately, the escapee not in his district courtroom. The judge acknowledged that the jury had no doubt read, heard and or seen news of Greg McHardy's Easter weekend escapades, including the details of his alleged assault on the woman and the theft of her car, along with the police warning that he was extremely dangerous. The jury, the judge said, needed to put all of that out of their minds because despite the objections of defence counsel Mr Keogh, Greg McCarty's trial on the Woolworths bombings and on the extortion charges was going to continue in his absence. Not that he said this out loud, but there was no way that Judge Muir was going to send the message that an accused criminal could short-circuit his trial just by escaping. But the judge did note that Larry Danielson had not sought an adjournment. That made sense because, if anything, Greg legging it made Larry look more innocent. Before the trial continued, Judge Muir made sure the jury knew that Larry Danielson had been in Long Bay Jail on the Easter weekend and so had nothing to do with Greg's escape. Detective Sergeant John Anderson, who'd been the head of the Woolworths Bombing Task Force, was re-sworn and continued his pre-Easter testimony. He told the court that yes, a page of Larry Danielson's notebook was missing and that no, the police had no evidence that alleged organised crime figure Bob Evans was in any way involved. The jury heard from the police's fingerprint expert who testified he'd found Greg's fingerprint on the Gregory's map page showing Taronga Park Wharf and Larry's fingerprint on the notebook page with those scribblings about the midnight special. A police handwriting expert testified that Greg had written the highly incriminating directions to where Detective Senior Constable Frank Kamer had retrieved the CB radio on the night of the ransom runaround and that Larry had written that midnight special note and the contact book entry for the Highway Hotel. Regarding this Highway Hotel entry, Larry's defence counsel, Mr Pritchard, was able to tender a diary in which Larry had, on the 19th of December, made a note about his plan to go to the Highway Hotel to check its size and suitability as an entertainment venue for a friend of his. Having done this on the 2nd of January 1978, Larry had written in that diary, quote, "'Drove Highway Hotel, Wentworthville. Gave a sleazy impression. Difficult to know what clientele to cater for.'" On one hand, this confirmed his story about having been out there on legitimate business and justified him having the details in his contact book. Yet, if that was the case, why had Larry supposedly initially denied ever going to the Highway Hotel when he'd been interviewed by Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall on the day of his arrest? And just because Larry had been there once for a legitimate reason didn't mean he hadn't used it as a ransom runaround location. In fact, it showed that he knew the place. The trial's most intricate testimony came from Alex Jones, Sydney University phonetics expert who'd been engaged by the police to study the tapes John Hendry was making of the extortionists and of the tapes that Detective Sergeant Desmond Johnson had made when Larry had called him on the 23rd of January. 
Alex Jones testified for two days, with the defence trying unsuccessfully to cast aspersions on his field of expertise and his methodologies. Unruffled, the voice expert carefully explained to the jury how he'd concluded that the Italian-sounding Mr Dunmore was in fact a native English speaker. This was shown most obviously by Mr Dunmore seeming to have difficulty pronouncing certain words and mucking up his grammar, yet on other occasions having no problem with these words or with his syntax. In this respect, Alex Jones's testimony dovetailed with that of Greg McCarty's friend Robert Manning, who told the jury he'd heard Greg using an Italian accent to tell jokes. Alex Jones had a lot more to say about the Mr. Bridge tapes, because he had Larry Danielson's voice, as recorded by Detective Sergeant Johnson, for comparison. First up, it was clear that both speakers were from New Zealand. For instance, they both pronounced a short E so that the number 10 sounded to Australians like tin. To Alex Jones's trained ear, there was no difference between the voice of Mr. Bridge and the voice of Larry Danielson. But the voice guru didn't rely only on his own sense of hearing. He subjected the tapes to instrumental analysis using a sonograph machine, which split the voices into component frequencies for comparison as spectrograms. This process, he said, confirmed that Larry and Mr. Bridges' voices were one and the same. But to be even more certain, Alex Jones carried out a mathematical analysis of the voices, with this result, he said, being 99.9% .9 certain. Alex Jones was a man of science using cutting-edge computer technology, and Larry's defense counsel, Mr. Pritchard, found it hard to argue against his evidence. Even Larry Danielson would later admit in court that Mr. Bridge sounded, well, a lot like him. When the trial resumed the following Monday, the 19th of April, it was to hear from Detective Constable Stephen Alcorn, who'd been Detective Sergeant Johnson's junior partner during those interviews with Larry Danielson at Huskisson. As expected, he corroborated the senior officer's testimony. Yes, Detective Sergeant Johnson had had a few whiskies, but no, he hadn't been inebriated or made any threats. Yet, Constable Alcorn, perhaps because he wasn't yet fully schooled in the art of corroboration, also gave the court a glimpse of how verbatim testimony like his came about. Mr. Pritchard asked, quote, The statement which was prepared by you for the foundation for the evidence you were to give in this trial was prepared by you in consultation with Detective Sergeant Johnson? Constable Alcorn answered, Yes. Mr. Pritchard, For that reason, your evidence is virtually identical to his? Constable Alcorn answered, Yes. Detective Sergeant John Anderson was recalled by Greg McHardy's lawyer, Mr. Keogh, who grilled him about Benny. And I need to make a correction here. In the last instalment, I mistakenly said that this defence lawyer had raised doubts about whether Greg had ever mentioned Benny. This wasn't the case, as we'll hear now, so my apologies for that mistake. Though the police would continue to make seemingly contradictory claims as to how they'd reacted to the story of Benny. Detective Sergeant Anderson said that after Greg had made the Benny claim, the whole New South Wales police force was out looking for him, led by some 30 men from Vice and 21 from Consorting because the search focused on King's Cross. This seemed at odds with what Detective Sergeants Openshaw and Hazard had said about making fairly cursory inquiries. 
Detective Sergeant Anderson also testified that at no point was Greg McHardy shown mugshots of known villains and asked if any of these men were Benny. Strange, given it was supposedly a major manhunt for the guy. During this cross-examination, Detective Sergeant Anderson was also a bit vague on who'd been out there looking. Mr Keogh asked, Can you name any detectives that you did directly order to go looking for Benny? He answered, quote, Well, Openshaw went looking for him, Hazard went looking for him, Walsh, Knight. So that was four of the 51 men he said had been spearheading the search. Mr Keogh's cross-examination put it to Detective Sergeant Anderson that he'd been present when Greg had told Detective Sergeants Openshaw and Hazard about staying with Larry and living at Bob Evans' place. Backing up his colleagues, Detective Sergeant Anderson denied that this had been said in his presence. According to Mr Keogh's version, Greg had told police that he'd called Benny after moving into Larry's house and told Benny that Larry was giving him a lift up to Sydney on the 22nd of December. He'd next got another lift with Larry to meet Benny and another man in Sydney on the 7th of January. The following day, they'd gone to Taronga Park Wharf, Greg had donned the scuba gear and done a successful trial run. The day after that, the 9th of January, Greg, still in Sydney and lobbing at a house in Campsie, had been told that the job had been put off. So Benny had driven him back to Huskisson and dropped him at Larry's place. Then, early on Monday the 12th of January, Greg had gone with Larry to Sydney again. They'd parted ways, Greg had met Benny, and that night he'd set about the real scuba pickup, only to be arrested early the following morning. Greg hadn't known what he was picking up and didn't know that he was doing anything illegal, not that he'd cared to ask. All of this was put to Detective Sergeant Anderson, as having been said in the interviews conducted by Detective Sergeants Openshaw and Hazard. He denied hearing any of that discussed, either in the first interview on the day of Greg's arrest or in the follow-up interview a fortnight later. And he'd certainly never heard either detective say to Greg words to the effect of, we are going to load you up and verbal you. Shortly after Detective Sergeant John Anderson left the stand, the Crown rested its case. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. For almost his whole life, Larry Danielson had been in the business of pleasing audiences. Whether playing the piano accordion as a boy in church halls in his native New Zealand, singing satirical ditties at the Gateway Hotel in Port Moresby, hosting bands like Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel at his Flicks nightclub in Manly, or, more recently, belting out tunes on the South Coast club circuit. Larry was used to being in the spotlight and charming crowds, getting them to clap and sing along, laugh and nod at his stories, see the world through the eyes and voice of Larry Danielson. Now, after the court lunch break on Monday the 19th of April, Larry had to give the performance of a lifetime for an audience of just 12. And of those dozen citizens, he only needed one to be charmed to be convinced of what he was saying. 
Larry began by recounting his arrival in Huskisson in April 1980 after what he called the breakup of his family life. Sparing the jury the dismal details of Flick's financial failure and his imminent bankruptcy, all of which of course might have painted him as being desperate for money. Larry told the court about working at the Sea Life Lodge before a quote, disagreement saw him part ways with the owner. From then on, his existence was quote, quite different to anything I had ever done in my life before. I didn't punch a Bundy. I didn't sign a wages book. I didn't report to a boss. If the day was fine, I went to the beach. Maybe I might go fishing. The point he was making was that after leaving the Sea Life Lodge, he'd abandoned his usual practice of keeping a diary, and that made it harder for him to be specific as to the wheres and whens of his life through December 1980 and January 1981. Quote, I have a very great weakness for dates, and I believe I am now standing in this box simply because of this weakness, and the fact that I gave a man a bed when he had nowhere to live. Of course, he was talking about Greg McHardy, nowhere to be seen now that he'd escaped. Larry told the court how his house in Huskisson, Tumbledown Dicks, had been a free and easy place. Quote, My home was unlocked. I would leave it sometimes for three days at a time and my friends would call in and see me. If you drink wine, there would be a flagon in the fridge. If you drink beer, you brought your own. There was always a meal going. Some weekends, six, seven, eight people. If you asked what weekend any one of them were there, I could not tell you. It would be impossible. Larry recounted taking his son to Bribey Island, the chance meeting with his mother that led to the reunion with his brother Alan, and how he'd asked Alan to sell some scuba gear back in September, before the Sea Life store was broken into. Larry reminded the jury that the break and enter and steal charge against him had been dropped at the committal hearing. Larry said he deserves some credit. How stupid would a bloke have to be to break into a store right next to his own house? Larry explained that he'd been in Long Bay Jail on remand since February 1981, more than 14 months, and he'd done his best to piece together dates. What made it hard was he was so cut off. Initially supportive friends had dropped him and the police had successfully agitated repeatedly against his bail so he wasn't able to get out there and find the evidence that would clear his name. Nevertheless, he'd done his level best to come up with an accurate chronology. Larry said he'd met Greg McCarty in early December through John Horobin. On the 5th of December, Larry had put the deposit on that safari suit at Fossies in Nowra and asked for the trousers to be taken up, saying he'd come back and pay the balance when these alterations were done. Larry had played music at the Huskisson Golf Club for the very first time the following night. On the 10th of December, he'd driven to Sydney and his gearbox had locked up. By then, he'd already bought a puppy for his son Chris, and he'd left the little dog in the washroom of the Tumbledown Dick's house for the day. Because it was hot and he was now going to be delayed in Sydney, Larry went to a phone booth and called his friend Sean Library to ask her to look after the puppy until he got back. So her testimony about this was off by a week. She'd claimed Larry had been away from the 17th to the 19th of December, which was when the Warilla and Maitland bombings had happened. Larry said, in fact, he'd gotten his car working that day and had been back in Huskisson by the 11th. The next day, he'd gone to Nowra Fossies to pick up the safari suit. He'd paid the balance, $50, but the sales assistant hadn't been able to find the trousers and this had caused her to become flustered. 
Larry had said, no worries, there was no hurry, and he'd come back. The Fosse's sales assistant he'd dealt with was not the woman whose court testimony about him taking the suit on the 12th had demolished his alibi. Larry said his son Chris had visited and played with the puppy all day, every day, from the 14th to the 17th of December. On the 17th, he'd taken Chris to John Horriban's place so the boy could use his surf ski. During this visit, Larry said, he and John had discussed putting on a music event. So Larry had decided he'd drive up to Queensland to finally get his marquee, and he'd make this trip a bit of a holiday for Chris. Hearing this, Greg had said he'd like to tag along and he could share the driving. So it was, they headed off early the next morning, the 18th of December, and got to Sydney by 8am. But young Chris was irritable and worried about getting stuck in Queensland and missing Santa. For this reason, Larry stopped in to visit Colin Fisk, using the man's telephone to call his ex-wife Diana to say their son wanted to come home. Larry said he and Greg continued driving to Queensland that day, the 18th, which he'd previously thought was the 22nd. His car had had a lot of problems and when it limped into Surfer's Paradise, he parked in a garage and set about making repairs while Greg McCarty went off to visit friends. Larry called John Horriban back in Huskisson because he wasn't sure he was going to get back in time to be there for his friend Ed Doherty who was coming to stay at Tumbledown Dicks on the 21st. But John's wife Robin answered and said John wasn't home, he was at the yacht club. So Larry called him there and told John to tell Ed the back door was unlocked. Initially, Larry told the court, Robin Horriban had said that he'd called her from Surfer's Paradise before Christmas and later she'd changed that to say it was about the 8th or 9th of January. Larry said Robin had been right the first time around and wrong the second time. Larry said that he and Greg took turns driving back from Surfer's Paradise and arrived in Huskisson on the morning of Saturday the 20th of December. Later that day, Greg asked at John Horriban's suggestion if he could stay at Larry's place for a while because Bob Evans needed his house back. Larry admitted he'd been wrong when he'd first told the police he'd gone to Sydney next on the 22nd of December. Quote, It was in fact a mistake in dates. As I said, the police are going to call me a liar, but I tell you, that is how it is. On the 23rd, I went to Sydney. That was the day he said he collected his mail from his friend's place. That had been the day he'd dropped Greg and then met him at the marble bar at 5.15pm, before driving back to Huskisson that night. Around noon the next day, the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, Larry had gone to Nowra, popped into Fosse's to pick up that safari suit. Then he'd gone to the nearby Bridge Hotel where he asked the barman to cash a cheque but the bloke couldn't because he hadn't been open long and didn't have enough money in the till. No worries, Larry said, and he had a beer and a chat with the guy. This guy, he said, remembered him but alas, he hadn't been able to find him to testify. And that was the problem with a lot of the people Larry said he'd seen. They either couldn't be found, didn't testify, or had completely different versions of the days and dates. Anyway, back in Nara that afternoon, Larry had bought some groceries and then returned to Tumbledown Dicks around 1pm where he saw Greg and their mutual mate, Bob Patterson. Bob had things to do and said see ya, but Greg helped Larry unload his groceries. Larry tidied up the house, had a shower, donned his new safari suit and went to the bowling club where he and Greg saw milkman Ross Dickinson in the car park around 
Realising he'd left his wallet at home, Larry and Greg went back to tumble down Dick's. Seeing as though they were back there, they decided to have a feed rather than spending their hard-earned money on pub grub. Bellies full, they went back to the club around 5.30 or 5.45. Larry's lengthy account was meant to impress upon the jury that there's no way he or Greg could have been in Sydney on Christmas Eve to set off a bomb in the Woolworths at Town Hall. While somewhat unreliable milkman witness Ross Dickinson had backed up Larry's story, Bob Patterson had said he couldn't remember seeing either man at 1pm or even later on. This made Larry mad, and he told the court, quote, The incredible thing about remembering dates, Bob Patterson was the man that McCarty was playing pool with that day. Bob Patterson isn't a dull man, but he sat up in the committal hearing and didn't remember which club he was at. He didn't remember what time he left. He didn't remember who he was with. And I am a man he used to drink with every night. He continued, That man saw McCarty and myself at one o'clock. Larry told the court that he and Greg and others drank long and deep that Christmas Eve. Quote, we finished up the evening at the RSL club, finally getting home, much the worse for wear, about midnight. Larry went to his brother Alan's place on Christmas Day, and Alan and his family came back with him to Huskisson on Boxing Day and stayed for a week. As for New Year's Eve, Larry said he and Greg had driven up to Sydney Airport to pick up Greg's girlfriend Karen. They'd left very early, and when they got to Sydney Airport, the place was in chaos because of an airline strike. Karen was nowhere to be found, and they didn't even know if she'd managed to get a flight or not. So they went to Central Railway Station in case she was trying to catch a train to Nowra, and they couldn't find her there either. They drove back to Nowra and tried to find her at the train station there, with no luck. So they had a few beers and then returned home to Huskisson around 2pm. Then Greg had gone off somewhere. Where? Larry didn't know. Karen had knocked on the door of Tumbledown Dicks, dropped there by Bob Evans, at around 6 o'clock, and she and Larry had set out to find Greg, locating him at the RSL. This part of Larry's testimony about getting home around 2pm on New Year's Eve contradicted what his sister-in-law, Maureen Bradford, had told the court about he and Greg being out all day on New Year's Eve and not getting home until 7pm. This, of course, was the day that an extortion call had been made to Woolworths head office at 10 past four in the afternoon. Larry was up and down to Sydney like a yo-yo in the next week. He and Greg took Karen to the airport on the 5th of January in time for her 7.30 morning flight. Around this time, John Horobin told Larry he knew the manager of the RSL at Sussex Inlet and this bloke might pay him to play music. Larry said, great, and John said he'd make an inquiry on his behalf. On the 7th of January, Larry and Greg were in Sydney again to look at that boat because they'd decided to go into the scallop harvesting business on Jarvis Bay. Larry had gone to the dive trek store in Rushcutters Bay to get a tank filled for use in checking out this boat's hull. There, Annie Calland had invited him to dinner at her place that night. The boat didn't prove suitable, and Larry told the court in detail what was wrong with it. He said he went to Annie's that night, and Greg stayed with a mate somewhere and decided to make his own way back to Huskisson. On Friday the 9th of January, Larry was still in Sydney, and he'd called Robin Horriban to see if the Sussex Inlet RSL manager had been in touch with John. She said the man hadn't been. 
Larry said that he told Robin he was calling from a long way away and she'd gotten it in her head that he'd said surfer's paradise. Larry said that night he drove back to Huskisson, getting the traffic ticket just before midnight and arriving home at 2 or 3 in the morning to see Greg sleeping in the bunk bed. That night, Larry played the Huskisson Bowling Club. The next day, Sunday the 11th, he was ferrying his gear back to his house when he saw Greg outside talking to that mystery man Larry would later claim he'd seen with Greg in Long Bay Jail remand. At the time, Larry thought nothing of it. Later that night, Greg asked Larry if he was driving to Sydney the next morning. Larry said he was. He had to collect his mail, which he hadn't done since the 23rd of December. As was their practice, they left very early and Larry dropped Greg at a phone box beside the Princess Highway at Rockdale at around 8am. It had been dark when they left Husky, but now Larry saw Greg unloading his stuff, a blue bag and his diving gear, including tanks. Greg's last words to him were, I'll see you at the Marble Bar at 3.30. Larry had gone book browsing and called at his mate's place to get his mail. He went to the marble bar at 3.30 and waited a while and then went for a walk. Thinking Greg might have run into a problem, Larry called Robin Horriban to see if she'd heard from him. Robin said she hadn't. Larry said this was the third call he'd made to Robin in the past month and that in her testimony she'd conflated them all into one, saying he'd phoned her from Surfers Paradise on the 9th of January. After speaking with Robin, Larry went back to the marble bar and had a beer or two. By 7.30, he was jack of waiting, and so he drove back to Huskisson. Greg wasn't asleep in the bunk. Greg wasn't anywhere to be seen. The next day, Larry went over to the Horribans to ask if they'd seen Greg. They said they hadn't. Larry told the jury he'd gone back to Sydney the next day, the 14th of January, and sold his green XD Falcon, the one that had given him so many problems, and the one the cops believed he'd sunk filled with incriminating evidence. With Greg's stuff apparently gone from the house, Larry didn't give his erstwhile roommate a second thought. He got on with his life, playing another gig at the bowling club on the 17th of January. Three days later, though, Larry had a more intimate audience, Detective Sergeant Des Johnson and Constable Stephen Alcorn, as they questioned him and revealed that that bloke who'd been caught in the harbour with the Woolies ransom was none other than his mate and house guest, Greg McCarty. Larry said he'd answered all questions as honestly as possible, but that he'd been pressured to sign the statement even though he'd said he wasn't sure about the dates. Larry said he'd done so because he had nothing to hide and because Detective Sergeant Johnson had assured him he could correct the dates if that became necessary. Larry also said he'd signed because, as far as his involvement was concerned, it extended only to giving a bed and a roof for a few weeks to the wrong fella. But Larry had begun to realise how dark things looked for him when, at his house in Huskisson on the 21st of January, he cracked that bottle of Glenfiddich for on-duty Detective Sergeant Johnson and served wine to his partner, Constable Alcorn. Quote, The things they said amaze me to this day. They said to me, We know you're involved. We know you are involved. Now, we feel that you only played a small part. Why don't you own up? I said, this has got nothing to do with me. This has got nothing to do with me. And he said, whether or not it has got anything to do with you, you are involved. Larry continued his story to the jury, quote, Now, 
I am not like a policeman, and we have heard them up on the stand, who are two men corroborating one another, words, words, word for word. I am telling you to the best of my memory, and these are the things they said to me. That Johnson said, We are going to find in your house explosives. We are going to tear up the floorboards. There are going to be explosives there, so you might as well own up and say you only had a small part. And I said, I told you once, I'm telling you again, it has nothing to do with me. He said, not only will we do that, but we will say that a pistol is found in your house and we will link that with a crime in Sydney. Larry told the court that the progressively more drunk Detective Sergeant Johnson had said, quote, We know who the ringleader is. It is a man called Bob Evans. We know he put this thing together and you're involved and we are going to send a team over this night who is going to blow Bob Evans away. Detective Sergeant Johnson, in Larry's telling of it, left the house, disgracing himself out the front by laying on the bonnet of his police car, tooting the horn and triggering the siren. That's when Detective Sergeant Tunstall had arrived and said to his colleague, quote, Get back to the motel, you're drunk. According to Larry, Detective Sergeant Tunstall said, Don't worry about anything, just relax and have a beer. Unsurprisingly, Larry was worried. So worried, he said, he went to see Bob Evans that night to tell him what the police had said and what the police had asked him to say about Bob. Larry told the court, quote, Bob Evans had a seizure. When we had the committals, Bob Evans went overseas. I wanted to call him as one of my witnesses for the trial. He is supposed to be subpoenaed. He is overseas. He is crucial to my trial. Larry continued, He is not here. He was not at the committal. He was not at the trial. And there are many, many other things that worry me about Bob Evans and things that have happened. Larry said he'd tried to work out his worries by writing notes on that pad trying to work out the pros and cons of whether Greg McCarty could have been involved, jotting down what he could remember of what Detective Sergeant Johnson had told him about the Woolworths bombings. On the 22nd of January, Larry had called Detective Sergeant Johnson as requested, realising this was probably a ruse, but he had nothing to hide. Besides, it gave him another chance to complain he'd signed the statement under protest about the dates, which Larry did, as recorded on the tape. After that phone call, over the next week, life for Larry got back to something like normal. He did end up playing the Sussex Inlet RSL on the 25th and then did a gig at the St George's Basin Sports Club three days later. The next morning, he was making bacon and eggs for himself and his house guest, Ed Doherty, at Tumbledown Dicks when Detective Sergeant Wilfred Tunstall came calling and took him away to Nowra Police Station. Brandishing his statement from that day, the day of his arrest, the last day he'd been a free man, Larry told the jury, quote, When I was interviewed by Detective Tunstall, these pages covered from 11 in the morning to 20 past 3. Now the police would like you to believe that everything I was asked and everything that I said in all those hours is all that is contained in this. Larry asked if he'd really given permission for his house to be searched. Why wasn't that in the record of interview? Larry explained that he'd genuinely forgotten about going out to the Highway Hotel three years earlier, which was why he initially told Detective Sergeant Tunstall that he'd never been there. Larry explained to the jury why he'd written the midnight special notes and how he'd gotten the details wrong, which kind of proved that he had nothing to do with the bombings. 
Larry said that Detective Sergeant Johnson had been angry with him for claiming not to know Greg's surname, not realising that Huskisson was that sort of town. The more Larry had said that he didn't know Greg was Greg McHardy, the angrier Detective Sergeant Johnson had become. Then there was the matter of that missing page from his notebook. Larry told the jury, quote, I wrote down on that page pros and cons and the reason why McHardy, I thought, could not be involved and I wrote down things to check and I had dates, places, names, people to see and then I had filled in that full page. The police have lost that page, not me. The police have lost it. Larry told the jury he'd been denied bail 12 to 18 times by the police because they didn't want him to be able to find the evidence that would clear his name. Quote, if I wanted to run away, and if I was guilty, why didn't I run away the first time Johnson questioned me? I had nine days. I could have gone anywhere. Larry's statement continued the following day, with him telling the jury of the mystery man he'd seen Greg McCarty with outside his house and then later at Long Bay Jail. He said that he'd reported this to Detective Sergeant Tunstall, who'd not only not believed him, but hadn't given him the opportunity to look at mugshots in order to try to identify this man. As for the blue insulation tape supposedly found in his house under Greg McCarty's bunk, Larry said he'd never buy that colour. Why? Simple. He used black tape on stage because it blended in with his equipment. His garden hose, which had been tended in court by his defence, had been repaired with black tape from a roll also found in his house. Quote, All my music equipment is black. I've worked always with black equipment. The reason for this is it doesn't detract from the person on the stage. It loses itself in the lights. I would never have bought blue insulation tape because to put blue onto black would spoil the effect I have worked out for many years. Larry finished by saying he'd had trouble with dates from the start and that many of the witnesses called by the Crown were no better. Quote, I would like you to consider the fact that I have not at any stage said to police, no comment, no answer. I have tried to answer. He went on, quote, I have had no part in the bombing of Woolworth stores. I have had no part in the demanding with menaces. There is a voice on the tape that even I can see the similarity. There is no doubt there is similarities. I could have sat mute here and not stood in this dock. As I say, even I can see the similarities. I am an entertainer. In the committals, Mr. Jones said there is no evidence of anybody trying to disguise their voice. Surely I could have made at least an attempt to put on an accent to raise the pitch or lower it. All I can say is I see the similarity, but I assure you that is not my voice. I assure you I am not guilty of these charges. On Thursday the 22nd of April 1982, Judge Muir began the long, careful process of summing up the case, recapping the testimony and evidence presented and the arguments for and against it, according to the Crown and the defence. Judge Muir pointed out that, with no one witnessing who'd bombed the Woolworth stores or delivered the ransom letter, the Crown's case was circumstantial. That, though, wasn't unusual, and it was up to the jury to determine whether the circumstances all pointed to guilt and to no other rational conclusion. The judge said that some things in the case were obvious. Whoever was responsible for blowing up the Woolworths Town Hall store had done so after also bombing the Warilla and Maitland stores. 
In describing Greg McHardy, who, by escaping, had waived his right to confront the evidence against him, Judge Muir said the circumstantial links from capture at the ransom pickup to written notes to extortion phone calls and actual bombings were clear. In fact, the judge pretty much directed the verdict, quote, Members of the jury, it is put to you, you will be satisfied beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt in each of the four cases, the three bombing cases and the demanding of the property illegally. This will be a conclusion at which you will arrive. As for the charges against Larry Danielson, they needed to be weighed by the jury, which is what the judge instructed them to do from 1pm on the 27th of April 1982. Three hours and 28 minutes later, the jury was back. The foreman read the verdict. Greg McCarty was guilty of all four charges. So was Larry Danielson. Judge Muir remanded Larry in custody until Friday the 30th when he'd hand down his sentence. Greg McCarty, well, he'd be sentenced if and when he was recaptured. Sentencing Larry, Judge Muir spoke with repugnance about the Woolworths extortion attempt and the three bombings. He singled out the 24th of December crime as the most appalling. Quote, To explode a bomb in a large retail store, the toy department of Woolworths, George and Park Street, Sydney, during business hours on Christmas Eve, with a 10-minute warning, is just so unacceptable an act in this community that all thinking persons would regard that as a monstrous action. On the third count, the Christmas Eve bombing, the judge sentenced Larry to 10 years in jail. Then he gave Larry five years each for bombing the Woolworth stores at Warilla and Maitland. So all up for the bombings, that was 20 years. For demanding money with menaces, Larry was given seven years to be served concurrently. The judge said he didn't know what sort of remissions might be in the future but he was setting a non-parole period of at least nine years from this day. So Larry Danielson wouldn't be out of jail until at least the 30th of April, 1991. Or so everybody thought. The Woolworths bombers had demanded a $1 million ransom. But now the $1 million question was, where on earth was Greg McCarty? I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the special Forgotten Australia series, The Woolworths Bombings. The final instalment is going to be with you very soon. Between now and then, I'd love it if you could spread the word about Forgotten Australia by telling a friend or two, and help the show reach even more ears by leaving a review and or rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.